chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. I'll give you a second, and if you're there, I will read. Hear now the word of the Lord as it is read from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 90 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zeta, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, 
if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I'll be reading from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the furnace? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has set his angel and sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much indeed. 
Um, I'm very grateful to uh, Ruby and to Seb, in fact, for stepping into the music team. Um, we're obviously a much more gifted church than I realized, and perhaps one can just call out names at random. Maybe next week it'll be Raymond on keyboard and Gift on the guitar or something like that. But um, anyway, I'm very grateful, so thank you very much indeed for that. Um, you will have noticed on the call to prayer group that uh, Tim Keller died um, on Friday, and um, I've posted a little tribute on the call to prayer group this morning, which you can listen to afterwards. Um, I personally am very thankful for his ministry, um, and uh, in fact, his impact on the worldwide church has just been tremendous. I do encourage you to listen to that tribute on the call to prayer group. It is, it is very moving. One of the things that he said uh, in the course of his ministry was that you are what you celebrate. You are what you celebrate. And just thinking about our move to the other end of the church, um, I wonder if that isn't perhaps something that we should be focusing on. Uh, not, of course, that we worship a building, but we do and can celebrate the way that God in his goodness brings us together in a project like this for the sake of the gospel. So as we think about the project and the timeline and moving in on the 2nd of July when uh, Bishop Frank Retief is actually going to be with us for that service, and he's a great evangelist, um, let's just be thinking about that. We are what we celebrate. Well, on that note, won't you please have uh, Daniel open in front of you? Um, it, it'll help you enormously if you've got the text right there. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to meet with us in his word. Father, we do thank you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible. And in days of confusion and lies and untruth, we pray that you would speak clearly and powerfully and persuasively the truth of the gospel into our lives this morning. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Vladimir Zelensky has spent most of his working life in the entertainment industry. Um, he's a talented actor. He's also a gifted musician and dancer. And he's won plenty of awards for his performances on TV and film. In the year 2015, he starred in a show called Servant of the People. And in it, he played the part of the president of Ukraine. He did it so well that shortly afterwards, his production company registered a new political party called Servant of the People. And Zelensky was nominated to be the leader. And to everyone's surprise, on the 20th of May, 2019, so four years ago this weekend, Zelensky was inaugurated as the real president of Ukraine. Am I a bit boomy, Brenda? Do you want to just turn me down a little bit? At the time, no one imagined for one moment that this very funny, likable actor would have to lead his country in a war against Russia. And yet here we are today, and Vladimir Zelensky is hailed, isn't he, as one of the most courageous leaders of our generation. 
I wonder what motivates him. I wonder what gives him the moral courage to make such a courageous stand against such a powerful enemy. That, I think, is a very important question. Because someone has said that a human being has only discovered something worth living for when he or she has discovered something worth dying for. And this morning, I want to ask you, well, have you? Have you discovered something worth dying for? Because unless you have, you haven't actually discovered something worth living for. It's a question, I think, that will make all of us slightly uncomfortable, especially those of us like me, uh, who've grown up in Western culture, because today, of course, Western culture isn't committed to anything. It doesn't believe in absolutes of any kind, and it certainly doesn't believe in absolute truth. Uh, as far as most Westerners are concerned, uh, a commitment to absolute truth uh, isn't simply foolish, it's considered to be dangerous. Uh, religious people who are convinced of the truth are habitually branded as extremists or bigots or fanatics or fundamentalists. Religion is fine, we're told, as long as it's not taken too seriously. Otherwise, of course, it might lead, might it not, to the kind of madness that resulted in 9-11. Apparently those suicide bombers had discovered something worth dying for. But look at the damage that came from it. It's horrific, wasn't it? And I'm sure we'd all agree that their actions were wicked. Murder can never be justified. At the same time, we're not to overreact and conclude that all deep religious convictions are dangerous. Because, you see, if we go down that particular road, we end up rejecting the words of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Jesus never sanctioned force for the sake of his kingdom. Uh, he said, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. So, let's be clear, no suicide bomber can legitimately claim that Jesus is on his or her side. But although Jesus commanded his disciples never to resort to violence themselves, he made it abundantly clear that Christians will be the victims of violence. Uh, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And what Jesus is really saying there is that following me means you will be persecuted and sometimes that persecution will be violent. Now here's the problem. Our generation has managed to do something that the first generations of Christians would never have believed possible. We've managed to make Christianity safe and comfortable. We've blunted its challenge. So today, taking up our cross, very often for many people, means little more than giving up certain things in Lent. 
We've distorted its appeal, shifting its focus away from God and his glory to ourselves and our happiness. And yet, often, following Jesus will not necessarily add to our superficial or immediate happiness. No, we should follow him not because it feels good, but because it's right. Now, on that note, uh, the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a timely challenge, I think, to the diluted, comfortable Christianity we see all around us today. And it certainly confronts us with a question. Have we discovered something worth living for? Are we prepared to stand firm for Christ, whatever the cost and whatever the opposition? If we do, the world will dismiss us as foolish, but in fact will be extremely wise in the sight of the only judge who really matters, uh, the God who created everything and who one day will judge the world. We're going to look at our story this morning under two headings. First, the folly of wholehearted faith. That's verses 1 to 23. And then secondly, the wisdom of wholehearted faith. The folly, the wisdom. So firstly then, the folly of wholehearted faith. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll realize um, that Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest king on earth. He's besieged Jerusalem, and he's taken from Jerusalem a small group of men that he's decided to groom for service in his empire. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And they were actually the forerunners of the whole nation who would be taken into exile a few years later by Nebuchadnezzar when he returned to Jerusalem, flattened the city, and destroyed the temple. And the Bible goes on to say that they're not just forerunners of the rest of Israel, they're actually forerunners of all Christians. Because, you see, we too are exiles in a strange land. The Bible says that we belong in the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. That's our home. But for the time being, until Christ returns, we're living in the kingdom of this present world, which the rest of the Bible often refers to as Babylon. Now, in that context, of course, uh, it looks as if it makes much more sense to submit to the powers and the authorities that we can see with our eyes around us. But the book of Daniel says there is a hidden power that's actually far more powerful than the powers we can see. Last week, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, didn't he, of a mighty statue that represented human power and the different kingdoms that come and go. And in the vision, you remember, there was also a rock. First, the rock looked very unimpressive. But in the vision, it smashes the statue, 
leaving nothing but dust. And that's the kingdom of God. That, that rock is the kingdom of God. And wisdom demands that we submit to the kingdom of God because his power alone will last. Human power comes from God and it's finite. It won't last. But divine power is ultimate and it's eternal. So the wise way to live in our world is in light of that ultimate reality. Now, I don't know, but perhaps you heard last week's talk and uh, you said to yourself, well, yes, Simon, I, I quite agree. God is the king who ought to be obeyed whatever the cost. But of course, it's one thing, isn't it, to say that at the end of a sermon. And it's a much, much harder thing to say when you're confronted with a choice, which means that if you do live for Jesus, you're going to suffer and that you'll have a high price to pay. Well, here in our text, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are forced to decide whether they believe this truth in practice. So come with me to verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Seems fairly clear, I think, that this image of gold is linked to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that we looked at last week in chapter 2. You may remember that in the dream, the head of the statue was made of gold, but the rest of the statue was made of other materials representing other kingdoms. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And the fact that there were other materials in the statue signified the fact that his kingdom was finite. It would be replaced by others. And then at the end of time, the whole statue comes crashing down. The only kingdom that's left is the kingdom of God. Now maybe having had the dream, that wasn't good enough for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he doesn't want to be just the head and then find that his empire gets swept away. So what does he do? He makes a statue of just one material. And his statue is made of gold from head to toe. And it seems to represent Nebuchadnezzar's longing that his kingdom would be secure and would be unchallenged by anybody. It's a bit like the Tower of Babel, you may remember, that was erected hundreds of years before, which was a symbol of human power. Uh, perhaps more than that, a symbol of human defiance of the authority of God. And Nebuchadnezzar's statue is very impressive indeed. So the king summons officials from all over the empire to a dedication ceremony. And I think we can safely assume this wasn't simply an ego trip. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, to unite a kingdom that has lots and lots of cultures and different ethnicities. We know this, don't we? I mean, here in South Africa, 
the leaders of this country have discovered that uniting the rainbow nation isn't quite as easy as they thought it would be 30 years ago. You've got to have some kind of social cement to hold the whole thing together. And it seems, I think, that Nebuchadnezzar devised this cult, this national religion, in order to bind the people together. We're not told whether it represented a god or whether it represented the king, but at the very least, it did stand for the state. National loyalty, national pride, national unity. And in our mind's eye, we can imagine the officials there, thousands of them from all over the empire, proudly sitting in their uniforms in the stands which have been put up for the occasion. And there's the king on his throne. And in verse 4, have a look at it, a herald announces, this is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn and the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. If you don't, it's the fiery furnace. Well, not surprisingly, as soon as the music strikes up, they all fall down. It was a triumphant success. And you can just imagine the officials uh, heading home after the ceremony to the far-flung corners of the empire with a kind of new sense of pride in being able to serve in such a great empire. What a privilege to be the servant of such a mighty king. And we can also imagine, can't we, uh, Nebuchadnezzar returning to his palace, uh, the insecurities that have been keeping him awake at night have melted away. He's not actually having those disturbing dreams anymore. But then there's a knock on the study door. And he gets up from his desk and he goes and he opens the door and there's a delegation of astrologers. And they say, O oh, king, live forever. Did you not say that all the officials must bow down as soon as the music strikes up? Because we couldn't help noticing that there were some Jews who did not fall down and did not worship the image of gold. No doubt they were motivated by jealousy that these foreigners from Israel had been placed in high positions, promoted over them. But notice, by the way, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are not drawing attention to themselves. They're not telling the whole world that they're protesting against the king's decree. They're not looking for trouble. They're just making their protest quietly, not making a big fuss about it. But uh, when the king hears about it, he's furious. He stages a mini-ceremony. It's there in verse 15. He says, when you hear the music, you're to fall down. But if you don't worship the statue you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's a profoundly arrogant statement. 
from a man who believes that whatever he says goes, not even a god could stand in his way. So at this point, the choice is very clear, isn't it? It's bow or burn. How tempting it must have been for the three friends to bow down. If you think about it, the king was not asking them to renounce Judaism. He wasn't saying (coughs) that they should deny their God. They could follow any religion they liked as long as they added the worship of this particular idol at this particular ceremony. But only take a moment. No doubt the onlookers were thinking, well, this isn't really a very big deal. It's only a symbolic gesture. But the three friends knew that it was way more significant than that. They knew the first two commandments. They knew that God had said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And they knew, of course, they couldn't obey both God and King. They had to choose between them. So, verse 17, they say, well, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Notice they're very respectful but they're also defiant. So they make their choice. And how those people who witnessed the scene must have thought to themselves, what utter folly. They've chosen the invisible over the visible. They've chosen to worship the unseen God instead of this massive, impressive idol. They've chosen to submit to this hidden authority rather than to the very obvious authority of Nebuchadnezzar. They've chosen to be different, rather than to fit in. Now, of course, that goes against all our natural instincts, doesn't it? Uh, We want to fit in with the crowd. We want to be liked. We want to be accepted. That long list of officials in the text, the satraps and prefects and governors and so on. That's making the point that everybody else just fell into line. Only three people dared to stand out and be different. They chose pain over comfort. I don't know whether you agree with me, but I think the instinct of self-preservation is probably the most powerful instinct in any of us. And yet these three friends chose to enter a furnace. They knew that's what would happen, but they stood firm. So the order came, and they're bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. What utter madness. That's what the world says. And they'll say the same whenever we make a stand and refuse to bow down to the idols in our world. And all those isms 
that are worshipped throughout the world every day. Think of totalitarianism, for example, which is absolute power invested in the state. There's something very attractive about that form of government. It provides a sense of order and stability in a world that has rejected God. Mercifully, here in South Africa, we don't yet live under that kind of regime, but there's a danger that we will willingly give more and more power to the state in the hope that they'll make things better. And yet there's always a price to pay for that kind of government. Because that form of government says the individual must fit in and give unquestioning loyalty and obedience to the state. Examples are not hard to find. For more than a decade, Boko Haram have been trying to establish an Islamic government in northern Nigeria. And uh, they've warned all Christians living in the north to flee to the south or face the consequences. The Christians who've remained in the north have been subjected to a relentless campaign of intimidation and have been ordered to renounce Christ or be executed. Well, many of them have refused to renounce Christ and they've paid the ultimate price. But the question is, what would I have done? What would you have done? Mercifully, in South Africa, it seems unlikely that we'll be asked to give up our Christian beliefs anytime soon. Uh, the world probably isn't going to ask us to stop worshipping our God. Far more likely, they're going to put pressure on us to worship their gods as well. Well, that's the next ism, that's pluralism. I'm very thankful for the African students we have in our church family training for gospel ministry across the continent. Over the years, some of them have said to me that when they go home, there can be intense pressure from the family to join with them in worship of the ancestors. When they refuse, the family gets angry. Their friends say, well, why are you being so disrespectful? I mean, you can worship Jesus 364 days of the year. Why not just this one day do what your family wants? Well, I don't know of any student that hasn't stood firm. Uh, but what would I have done? What would you have done? What about materialism? A young man was given authority to decide which company would provide electricity for a large portion of his home country, not South Africa, actually, in this example. There was a huge amount of money at stake. The contract was put out to tender. Various offers came back. And one of them was attached to a very large personal bribe. The young man said no. Uh, the company came back saying, no one will know, everyone does it. It's the way we do things in this country. He still said no. Uh, the bribe was increased. He still refused. So they asked him, well, why are you refusing? He replied, I won't take your bribe because I've already been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you can't give me anything that's worth more than that. Jesus Christ was more important to him than money. 
And he gave up the chance of a fortune. But what would I have done? What would you have done? You see, the world can't understand those people who serve the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the gods of this age. People who choose the invisible above the visible. Who choose to be different rather than simply fit in. Who choose pain rather than comfort. Seems like utter folly, doesn't it? But it isn't. It's great news, isn't it, that verse 23 is not the end of the story. The first 23 verses portray the folly of wholehearted faith. But verse 24 to the end reveal the wisdom of wholehearted faith. I think you've got to admire the faith of the three friends, haven't you? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had told them in no, in no uncertain terms in verse 15, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And they calmly replied, what God? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, our God, the God we serve, Verse 17, he is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. That's impressive enough, but I don't know about you, I find verse 18 even more powerful. You see, they believed in a loving, sovereign God who's always in complete control. So they say, well, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Sometimes we're told that when you pray, you've got to believe in advance that what you're praying for has already happened. Have you heard people say that? You've even got to thank God that he's answered your prayers, though it hasn't happened yet. And you must banish any uncertainty or doubt from your mind. It's a kind of name-it-and-claim-it approach to praying. That is not Christian prayer. If God has made a promise in the Bible, of course, humbly, we should be asking him to do what he has promise. That's why we send out praying the promises to you every morning. Because when we pray God's promises, we are on extremely solid ground. But in every other matter where God hasn't declared his mind, we should pray, Lord, please will you do this, if it be your will. Because we can't be sure. But in every situation, we're called to trust in the loving sovereignty of the God who is always in complete control. So we pray, Lord, please heal me of this disease. Lift me out of my depression. But even if you don't, I'll still serve you. Lord, please give me a husband or a wife. But even if you don't, I'll serve you. 
Lord, please take this temptation away. Please give us the child we've been longing for. Give us the job we need in order to support the family, but even if you don't, we will still serve you. Now that is the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their faith was vindicated, wasn't foolish, it was very wise. Because God may be invisible, but he is present. Look at verse 24. In amazement, Nebuchadnezzar says, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. That's telling us God was with them. You see, God may not protect you and me from the fires of affliction and the fires of suffering, but he's always with us in them. Sometimes those fires, those fires of suffering are going to come as an unavoidable part of living in a fallen world. Sickness, bereavement, disappointment. At other times, the fires will come as a direct result of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Sometimes faithfulness to Christ means there's going to be more suffering, more difficulties to deal with. And you probably know better than I do that in some parts of the world, Christian believers can't get proper jobs, they can't get a decent education. They might find their homes are confiscated, in some cases, they might lose their freedom and even their lives. But whatever the circumstances, we can be certain that God is with us in the flames. In the middle of some terrible ordeal, you'll hear some people say, you know, we've never felt Christ to be closer to us than we feel him with us now. Other people might say, well, as we look back, we know that Christ was with us as we went through that situation. He's taught us so much. He was working in us and through us. So, so did you notice, very interesting detail, verse 25, that they were walking around unbound and unharmed. So think about it. Their clothes and bodies are intact. The only thing that was burned were the ropes. Isn't that interesting? And uh, sometimes that's the way God deals with you and me. He sometimes uses the fire of extremely difficult circumstances to release us from things that bind us. God may be invisible, but he is present, and he is powerful. So in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar calls out to them, I imagine from a safe distance, come out, come here. And they did. And they were completely unscathed and unharmed by the flames. So Nebuchadnezzar changes his tune completely. Just one more step 
on his own journey to conversion that we're going to read about next week. Uh, perhaps, or before, we've seen that he, he was taunting those men for their faith, wasn't he? What God can save you, he said. But now, in verse 28, he announces that this God must be praised and that no one in his empire may speak against him. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, well, they're promoted. Now, it's a lovely story. Um, there's a great sense of completeness about it, isn't there? Everything turns out fine in the end. But you and I are not to conclude from that that in this fallen world, everything will always turn out fine in the end. Later in this very same book, in chapter 11 and verse 33, God himself says that some of his people will fall by the sword, or be burned, or captured, or plundered. So faith isn't always vindicated in this life. But it is always wise to be wholehearted in our faith. Because God is always present, and he is supremely powerful. The great idol of human rebellion against God is going to come crashing down one day. It is going to be smashed to pieces by the rock of God's kingdom. You might be thinking, well, I hear you, Simon, but how do we know that isn't just naive and wishful thinking? Can we really be sure about that? Yes, we can. And not just because of what happened to those three men all those years ago but because of what happened to the Lord Jesus. Jesus, of course, was assaulted by all the enemies of God. Human power, the religious authorities, the might of the Roman Empire, satanic power. And as Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, his enemies were absolutely convinced they'd won, but they hadn't. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, having conquered everything his enemies could throw at him. The grave couldn't hold him. And in coming out of the grave, he achieved the victory not just for himself, but for all who trust in him, for all who turn away from the idols that demand our worship every day, and who through faith in the death of Jesus find forgiveness for all their sins and a secure place in his eternal family. And my dear friends, if you've done that, you know that you really have found something worth living for. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the example of these great men of faith all those years ago. But above all, we thank you for the challenge and the example of the Lord Jesus, who died and then rose. Help us to trust in him 
and to be wholehearted in our service of him, whatever the cost. For your name's sake we pray.